This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Today's episode of the Return to Order Moment is entitled The Church, the World, and the Coronavirus. The effects of the coronavirus are all around us. However, only some of those effects will go away as society reopens. Everyone, it seems, has an opinion about exactly what those effects will be. At the Return to Order moment, our observations are based on objective truth and the 2,000-year experience of the Holy Catholic Church. First, we will consider the nature of the outbreak itself. Mr. John Horvath II addresses this topic in his article, Is the Coronavirus a Chastisement? It depends on who you ask. This article was previously published on LifeSite News. Seeing the coronavirus as a chastisement for sin is a non-starter with many who prefer not to think of God in those terms. However, any pondering about the coronavirus and God will eventually lead us to question his motives. The answers vary depending on who you ask. Never ask progressive theologians if the coronavirus is a chastisement. They will always find some kind of class struggle cause for catastrophes. Greedy people oppressing poor people cause disasters. Systemic social structures create misfortunes. Abuse of Mother Earth leads to eco-catastrophes. Besides, the notions of sin and hell are fuzzy to these modern theologians. One cannot be chastised for something that one is not sure exists. Don't ask a class of sentimental Catholics who will always avoid unpleasant talk about chastisement. The prospect of God's infinite mercy attracts them much more than his equally infinite justice. They believe that fire and brimstone sermons are a thing of the past. Now is the era of peace and love. They will tell you that the virus is no punishment because a merciful God does not chastise. Don't ask hardened sinners for their take on the issue. They have the most to lose by belief in a chastisement. They are busy enjoying life's pleasures, committing sins, and embracing the world's false promises. And although the wages of sin weigh down their consciences, they live in denial, thinking themselves happy. There is no time to think about chastisement as long as the party keeps going. The self-righteous are a bit more honest. They are willing to admit the possibility of chastisement, but only for the sins of others. They rightly concede that sins like procured abortion, sodomy, pornography, and adultery could bring down God's judgment upon us. But since they do not commit these sins, they see the full weight of any chastisement falling on the sinners, not themselves. However, if you want an honest answer to the question, ask a repentant sinner. Such sinners will always have the courage to say it outright. Yes, the coronavirus is a punishment for our sins. God is chastising us for abandoning him. God is chastising me. I deserve to be punished, for I have grievously sinned against my God. The reason why repentant sinners answer correctly is that they have a true notion of what sin is. Alas, society has lost the idea of the gravity of sin. Therefore, we cannot conceive it being the cause of chastisement. If we but knew the seriousness of sin and how it offends God, we would see everything, including our own guilt, with different eyes. St. Augustine defines sin, especially mortal sin, as, quote, something said, done, or desired, contrary to the eternal law, unquote. When we sin, we voluntarily turn away from God, our true last end. 
We disobey God by breaking his law, which is suited to our nature and happiness. Sin offends God because we prefer a passion or mutable good to our Creator. Sin does not hurt or change God, who is immutable. However, it does offend God by depriving Him of the honor and reverence due to Him. St. Alphonsus de Liguori says that the sinner insults, dishonors, and afflicts God. As sinners, we insult God by declaring ourselves His enemies and fighting Him who created us. We dishonor God by offending Him for the sake of pleasures or passions, which we turn into false gods. When we sin, we afflict God because we treat with ingratitude Him who so tenderly loved us to the point of giving up His only begotten Son to death, and death on a cross. Thus, sin is serious since it destroys our relationship with God. It frustrates God's infinite goodness, whereby He desires our greatest good and happiness. We live in iniquitous times, in which the occasions of sin are everywhere. Everything in our culture conspires against us so that we may sin. Most choose not to recognize their iniquity. However, we are all sinners. We are sinners by our acts against God, especially those of impurity that so dominate our hypersexualized world. We can sin by failing to honor God, defend His law, or oppose the reign of sin. For those of us who try to do good, we can sin by failing to be good enough. The more we love God, the more we see our sins before us. Thus the psalmist says, For I know my iniquity and my sin is always before me. Psalms chapter 50 verse 5. That is why the saints are particularly sensitive to their sins and constantly seek to do reparation for them. When misfortune visits them, they see it as a just chastisement for their offenses against an infinite God. Most people have the wrong idea of God's chastisements. They see them almost as arbitrary acts. They do not see them as a means to put things back in order. Our Lady at Fatima spoke of the chastisements in this manner. When society as a whole becomes iniquitous and unrepentant, the only way to return to order is through great tribulation for all. St. Alphonsus clarifies the matter by saying, quote, God, being infinite goodness, desires only our good and to communicate to us his own happiness. When he chastises us, it is because we have obliged him to do so by our sins, unquote. Indeed, God desires our amendment more than we do. He chastises not because he desires to punish us, but because he wishes to deliver us from punishment. He has compassion on us by showing himself angry toward us in order that we may amend our lives and that thus he may be able to pardon and save us. Repentant sinners perceive all this. They have experienced God's merciful love and chastisements in their own lives. They know the good that can come from this action for themselves. They desire that others might also share in God's merciful yet just action. The repentant sinner sees not only individual sins, but also a sinful society. The sinner realizes that the only way society as a whole will return to order is through an analogous process through which sinners pass. Thus, the chastisement is not a calamity, but liberation from evil's dominion. 
Indeed, the sinner welcomes this chastisement, recognizing the suffering that is involved. St. Alphonsus says that the sinner cries out with great love, quote, O God, I have so much offended thee. Chastise me in this life that thou mayest spare me in the next, unquote. Many are opining about the present crisis, trying to come up with convoluted explanations for the great sufferings that are coming. They should ask a repentant sinner. They should heed Our Lady's message at Fatima. This is the end of Is the Coronavirus a Chastisement? It Depends on Who You Ask by John Horvath II. The idea of a great and deadly plague is not new to the 21st century. The Church has dealt with many plagues over its 2,000-year history. During those times of trial, many heroes of the faith have come forward. One of them is St. Charles Borromeo. Mr. Dominic Galatolo looks at his reaction to a plague in the 16th century and what his example tells us today. How St. Charles Borromeo fought the deadly virus in Milan. This article was previously published in TFP Student Action. The coronavirus is not the first epidemic to strike the world. Yet as churches are closed and the sacraments are difficult to find, the question arises, how did the church and saints deal with plagues in the past? In the golden pages of history, we find a holy bishop who faced a virus more deadly than the coronavirus. From 1576 to 1578, a plague ravaged through northern Italy, killing tens of thousands. This epidemic was known as the St. Charles Plague because of the heroic response of the Cardinal Archbishop of Milan, St. Charles Borromeo. On August 11, 1576, the plague broke out in the northern quarter of Milan as festivities were being planned for the arrival of the famed Don Juan of Austria. Hearing of the outbreak, most of the secular authorities, along with Don Juan, fled. Charles was attending the funeral of a bishop outside the city when he heard the news. Instead of staying in place or fleeing, he immediately set forth toward the city. As he entered Milan, many people rushed out, crying for mercy. Without resting from his journey, St. Charles went straight to the cathedral and said a short prayer. After appealing to God for help, he advanced into the epicenter of the outbreak, not even taking the time to change out of his dusty riding clothes. When he finally retired to his Episcopal palace, he found a few remaining government officials waiting for him. They asked St. Charles to take command of the city as their leaders, including the governor, had abandoned their posts. St. Charles accepted the burden, saying, A long time ago, I resolved never to leave undone anything which might be for my people's good. I beg you, above all, not to lose heart. Do not be affected by the example of those born and bred in the city who hurriedly abandoned it by flight at the very moment when it needed help. Unquote. Since the authorities, out of fear of the contagion, had already forbid public processions and religious ceremonies, many souls were deprived of the sacraments. St. Charles said that it was because of this that the wrath of God had been called down upon Milan. Therefore, he told the officials that the only cure was to pray and do penance more piously than before. To prepare himself for what lay ahead, St. Charles offered himself as an expiatory victim for the sins of his people. He also organized his affairs and made his last will. After this preparation, he went out every day to visit the sick and dying. Profoundly moved by their suffering, St. Charles said, The dreadful state of these wretched creatures 
everything lacking for both soul and body. These unhappy children seem to look on me as the cause of all their ills. Their silence reproaches me for my idleness. I put off holding out a helping hand, when by my example I should have moved others to pity. I will delay no longer. By the grace of God, I will do my duty to the utmost." Unquote. He redoubled his efforts, focusing mainly on the spiritual welfare of the beleaguered. Many priests in Milan were in hiding, fearing that they might catch the disease. Even among the Holy Cardinal's household, many fled. Of those who stayed, some refused to join him when he went into infected houses. However, St. Charles sent out a beautiful appeal to his absent priests, saying, We have only one life, and we should spend it for Jesus Christ and souls, not as we wish, but at the time and in the way that God wishes. It would show presumption and neglect of our duty and God's service to fail to do this. Unquote. The saint rebuked his priests. Quote, do not be so forgetful of your priesthood as to prefer a late death to a holy one. Unquote. Answering the call, many secular priests and Capuchin fathers heroically served the sick, especially in the leper house, which doubled as an emergency hospital. After the plague subsided, not one of St. Charles's companions had perished, but many priests who stayed back and refused to help had indeed been stricken. St. Charles advised his patients not to, quote, neglect human means such as preventatives, remedies, doctors, everything that you can use to keep off infection, for such means are in no way opposed to our doing our duty, unquote. Whenever people urged St. Charles to avoid unnecessary risk, he would reply, God can replace us. But at the same time, he was not imprudent. Answering a question of the Bishop of Brescia, St. Charles affirmed, quote, From the beginning, I resolved to place myself entirely in God's hands, without, however, despising ordinary remedies, unquote. St. Charles issued prudent guidelines. The faithful were told not to gather in crowds and to avoid contact with each other. Masses were not canceled, but only held outdoors if the church was too cramped. He ordered more masses said than before. Catechism classes were moved to street corners. He had separate places in church for the disease-stricken and separate holy water fonts for them. His counsel to the clergy and magistrates was to, quote, take the plague of the soul in consideration more than the contagion of the body, which for many reasons is less pernicious, unquote. Although the death rate and the contagion rate were extremely high, St. Charles insisted on public prayer and penance. Ashes were constantly distributed. Three processions a week were held. In these processions, St. Charles walked barefoot, wearing a thick penitential cord around his neck. Bells rang seven times a day for public prayer and the singing of psalms. As those inflicted could not leave their homes to attend Mass or the processions, St. Charles set up 19 columns throughout the city. At the foot of these pillars, public masses were celebrated every morning. This allowed the sick to assist at Mass every day, and the priests would distribute the Holy Eucharist to all the victims of the plague through their home windows. Even today, these pillars with crosses on top are visible all over Milan. St. Charles went nearly every day to the leper house to give the sacraments to the suffering. He baptized newborns and gave last rites to the dying. A certain Capuchin brother, James, who worked in the leper house and sought St. Charles's good works at the time, said, quote, 
He often goes to the leper house to console the sick, into huts and private homes to speak to the sick and comfort them, as well as providing for all their needs. He fears nothing. It is useless to try to frighten him. It is true that he exposes himself much to danger, but so far he has been preserved by the special grace of God. He says he cannot do otherwise. Indeed, the city has no other help and consolation. Unquote. However, just as today, not all men fear God or take advantage of the suffering to repent. Some young Milanese nobles decided to flee the plague and practice impurity and immorality in a villa far away from the city. They shut themselves up in this villa, which they dubbed the Academy of Love. Yet these reprobates soon found out that God is not mocked, even in the most secluded locations. The plague broke out in the villa, and very few of the sinners survived. By Christmas of 1577, the plague had abated. At the end of the plague, 17,000 people had died in Milan out of a population of 120,000. This included 120 priests, most of whom had fled. However, in the smaller city of Venice, 40,000 people died in the same two years. Why had Milan been spared from a greater loss? St. Charles answers, quote, Not by our prudence, which was caught asleep. Not by the science of doctors who could not discover the scourges of the contagion, much less a cure. Not by the care of those in authority who abandoned the city. No, my dear children, but only by the mercy of God. Unquote. In stark contrast to St. Charles, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, a baptized Catholic, issued a recent statement mocking and excluding God from the fight against COVID-19. The pro-abortion governor congratulated himself during a press conference, saying, quote, The number of infections is down because we brought the numbers down. God did not do that. Fate did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that, unquote. The crisis of faith is obvious. In this time of great need, most Catholics are spiritual orphans. No masses, no confessions, no last rites, no St. Charles Barameos. The Bishop of Springfield, Massachusetts, for example, suspended the last rites in all instances in his diocese. At their final hour, the dying are deprived of the Church's spiritual assistance and consolation. As John Horvat points out in his column, the coronavirus is a call to return to God. Our reaction, quote, reflects a society that has turned its back on God. We face the crisis, trusting only in ourselves and our devices, unquote. What the world needs most are more St. Charles Borromeos, more heroic shepherds to restore the faith, promote confidence in God's providence, and awaken true devotion to the maternal and immaculate heart of Mary. St. Charles Borromeo, pray for us. This is the end of how St. Charles Borromeo fought the deadly virus in Milan. In a crisis like this, it is natural to search for answers. Unfortunately, if those answers are incorrect, the answers based on that misinformation will be erroneous as well. Mr. John Horvat II takes up that subject in our final article for this episode, No One Can Oblige Us to Commit Suicide. 
The USNS Comfort was rushed to New York City Harbor to help care for the tens of thousands of coronavirus patients that were expected to fill the city's hospital beds. The floating military hospital added a full thousand beds to the system's capacity. That ship is now leaving, having been barely used. In New York City, the much-feared collapse of the health system never happened. Extra ventilators, like the hospital ship, are available for other places. The ship's stay in the hot zone and its departure are highly symbolic. Across the country, hospitals prepared for Armageddon by clearing out space to deal with the expected waves of COVID-19 victims. Then, everywhere the health system was underwhelmed by an Armageddon that never came. Now hospitals are laying off medical staff or even going bankrupt. The lack of patients and the canceling of elective surgeries seriously harmed them financially. People are dying because they postponed vital operations. Something went seriously wrong with the models used to project the threat to public health. These models were not even close to reality. The most cited was released by a team from the Imperial College London, led by Professor Neil Ferguson. It was used by a large number of governments to impose extreme confinement measures on their citizens. These political leaders showed more faith and reverence for this model-skewed projections than they accord to the four Gospels. These London experts estimated 2.2 million Americans would die. Only a fraction of that number succumbed. The study's principal author later admitted that the wild estimates were based on thousands of lines of undocumented code written 13 years ago to model flu pandemics. These initial models were not just miscalculations, but guesstimates based on a poor application of science. A politicized media then ran with them. No one has been called to accounts over this massive mistake. The scientists still have their jobs. The government leaders who rashly and unquestionably accepted and acted on their inflated numbers are still in office. Irresponsible media continues to whip up hysteria. At the same time, political leaders smugly ignored doctors and scientists like Dr. John Ioannidis of Stanford University. Their studies and insights were quite close to accurate, and estimated the lethality rate was close to that of the seasonal flu. Had they been given favorable hearing, it could have saved the hospital system a great deal of time and money. Their politically incorrect yet epidemiologically correct insights could have saved lives and trouble. Not satisfied with their disastrous handling of the crisis in the medical field, government leaders doubled down and went for an encore in the economy and society at large. The wheels of industry and commerce came to a screeching halt in anticipation of the pandemic that would kill millions. A good portion of the world is still in some phase of lockdown. These decisions, too, were based on the same faulty models. They are triggering a meltdown. Government actions should be based on real data and sound science. The continued implementation of extreme confinement measures based on these flawed guesstimate models is nothing but socio-political and economic suicide. Vast stretches of America with few or no cases of the virus were treated with the same drastic rigor as New York City, the national hotspot. Vibrant businesses and operations were systematically divided into just two groups, essential or non-essential.
Who knows what questionable criteria informed this unsolomonic decision, seeing that in many states, abortion mills, marijuana dispensaries, and liquor stores were deemed essential, but not so churches and religious gatherings. When integrated modern economies stop, whole supply chains also halt. Components of the process often cannot be repurposed. Massive amounts of goods and foodstuffs must be donated or thrown away. The sheer scope of economic destruction is mind-boggling. In March and April, markets shed trillions of dollars. Important industries like hospitality and travel ground to a halt. Debt skyrocketed. Government spending ballooned out of all control. Tens of millions no longer have jobs and are collecting unemployment aid. Worst of all, the business world, eager to reopen, is subject to the slow and cruel vagaries of the same politicians who landed them in their current fate. Many government leaders now extend the lockdowns in a vacuous attempt to save face and prove the closings were indeed needed. Other government officials are ideologues and care nothing for the economic calamity. They see the crisis as an opportunity to ram through their socialist and green agendas. The great danger is not the virus, but rather the bungling of its handling. It led to measures that are destroying the social and economic order. A do-whatever-it-takes attitude is burning the house down when a flashlight would have been sufficient to illuminate and find a solution to the problem. One day, history will judge with great severity the guilt of all involved in creating the panic and hysteria informing this crisis. It will condemn harshly those who have openly and unashamedly used the crisis to pursue their subversive ideological goals. To varying degrees, each must bear some responsibility for this medical and economic calamity. They will share in the blame for those who perish by illness, suicide, anxiety, and other indirect causes of death wrought by the worldwide panic and everything it triggered. The only way out of the crisis is to pull out of this suicidal course. Now. Immediately. No one can be obliged to commit suicide. Like the USNS Comfort, it is time to leave the New York Harbor behind. End of The Church, The World, and The Coronavirus. Thank you so much for listening. To read these or find related articles, please visit our websites at www.tfp.org and www.returntoorder.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.